friends. This is uh, Alex Steed. This is one of your co-hosts of You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. We will be joined by my spectacular and illustrious co-host Sarah Marshall momentarily and our wonderful guest, Olivia Giovetti. Uh, just so you know, there's a bit of a content warning. One of the plot points of The Big Chill uh, revolves around suicide. And so we talk about that in the context of the movie. We talk about that in the context of our personal lives. And there are some personal connections with suicide that we discuss in the episode. So uh, know that that is coming. Uh, And it's a good time to tell you that this is a conversation about The Big Chill, sure. But it's also a conversation about grief. It's a lovely conversation. I think it's one of my favorites so far. It's, it's intimate, and I I like that a lot. So thanks for tuning in, for listening to us talk about this movie. Quick note, if you were expecting Thor Ragnarok today, uh, we were too. <laughs> so something came up. You'll get Thor Ragnarok uh, later with Fangirl Jean, who we adore, and uh, that's still on our agenda. It's just not for this week. But thank you, thank you, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We announced the release of the music of You Are Good, Volume 1, which will be coming out on Friday, October 1st, 2021. We would love for you to pre-order. The link is in uh, the show notes. Or if you know, you're know you listening by the time it's out, we'd love for you to order. Uh, it will be out on Bandcamp. And that's where you can listen to it for a month. It will be on streaming services eventually. It would mean a lot to us for you to pay the little bit of money it costs. But uh, literally over 100 hours goes into mixing. Uh, we have to pay someone to master it. You know, you want to support some art that we made? Uh, this is a great way to do it. <laughs> so check out the link. And patrons get a discount. So check out our Patreon account and you will find a post that has a discount code. This is a perfect time to tell you that this show is brought to you uh, with support by everyone who supports us on Patreon. Thank you so much to our patrons. It means a lot to us in a really, really big way. Patreon.com slash you are good. You get bonus episodes, which is great. We have a couple of those that come out a month. Uh, this last one was about Jeeves and Worcester. We talk about why British literature is comforting in uh, times of stress. We talk about Sherlock Holmes. We talk about Watson. We have, it's a big episode and it was a lot of fun to put together and you get access to that if you support us via Patreon. So thanks so much to everyone who does that. You Are Good is also made possible with generous support from uh, Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K Factory, which is a commercial and creative content video production company based in Portland, Maine, though it does work throughout these here United States. If you need things of that sort produced, please get in touch with the folks at Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K Factory. They would be so happy to help you out. Finally, every episode comes with a playlist that we put together, which is inspired by the conversation about the movie and the movie itself. You can find that in the show notes. Check it out. There's a link in there and uh, listen to the songs. There's one for every episode going back at least a dozen episodes, maybe more than that. I'm not sure, but we have a good deal of those. The next time we chat, we are going to be entering October, which is um, it's the official start of the so-called spooky season. And uh 
we have a great roster of movies for that that I'm just so, so, so excited to share with you. We're going to be covering the Rocky Horror Picture Show with Chelsea Weber Smith of American Hysteria. We will be covering Little Shop of Horrors with our great friend Dana Schwartz. The Lost Boys with Lulu Miller, producer extraordinaire. And Hocus Pocus with our pal Mara Wilson. It's going to be fun. We're going to have a fun month. And uh, we also have covered a good deal of horror movies in the past. So uh, maybe I'll put up a link about the horror movies that we have covered in the past in case you're looking for a guide. Look for that in the uh, in the show notes. All right. That's so much information from me before we dive into the big chill. Let's, let's get to it. You should be here. I feel like we should have had a chair for Alex. I know this is all so familiar and I, I love you all so much. I know that sounds gross, doesn't it? I feel like I was at my best when I was with you people. I know what you mean, sir. Um, when I lost touch with this group, I lost my idea of what I should be. At least we expected something of each other then. I think we needed that. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. I'm really excited to be talking about a movie about adults your age. Oh, my God. I know. Who engage in foreplay wearing pajamas. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. And for the record, we are talking about the big chill and not the Irishman. And we have with us uh, Olivia Giovetti. Am I pronouncing that correct? Sure. How would you pronounce it? You know, I've always been kind of do your thing with my with my last name when I'm in Italy or speaking Italian. I do say Giovetti, but that oh. also sounds really pretentious when you're just talking normal American English. Totally. I appreciate that because I'm from New England, the part that has no Italians in it. And so I appreciate that you you went for it for me. <laughs> <laughs> Olivia, tell us a bit about you and tell us a bit about your relationship with The Big Chill. I'm primarily a cultural critic and write a lot about classical music, but uh, also have written about books and film. And The Big Chill is a very, very favorite film of mine, in part because I lost my father to suicide when I was young. And Mm. I am really attracted to films and characters and works in general of people who are left behind and figuring out what did this life mean and what changes in our lives after we lose uh, someone we love. So that plus, you know, William Hurt and mm. Kevin Klein and I'm sold. Yeah. <laughs> Sarah, for the souls that have not sat with the big chill many, many times as I have, can you tell us what this is all about? Well, I would like to put forth a hypothesis I have, which is that like boomer families in the 80s were required by law to own the Big Chill soundtrack. It was sent to them by the federal government. (laughs) (laughs) Agreed. Like this and Graceland. 
defined the sound of my childhood. Like that was, and the Big Easy soundtrack. We had the Big Chill soundtrack and the Big Easy soundtrack, two huge soundtracks. I mean, in Reagan's 80s, you didn't need economic stimulus payments. So (laughs) (laughs) you just got through it with the Big Easy soundtrack. Yeah. And so I grew up with that soundtrack and I understood that the Big Chill was like about people exactly my mom's age because she was born in 1948. And she went to the University of Michigan for grad school. Oh, wow. I know. Although I never knew of her going to a house full of her old friends where they all cooked and and fucked. But like, that doesn't mean it didn't happen. And at least one of them (laughs) did a lot of great drugs. No, like one of the many pleasures of this movie is watching Glenn Close smoke a doobie. (laughs) (laughs) And then when I finally saw this movie for the first time, when I was on my senior year of high school, I remember being... Having the feeling that I think you get a lot when you see a movie that you've been anticipating for a long time, where like rather than being something sort of grand and universal, it's like modest and specific. Mm. And like that's why people love it and why it's important. But like I remember being like, oh, like I really liked it, but I was like, I don't know what I was expecting, but it wasn't that. And this is actually only the second time I've seen it. And it's funny to me, A, how clearly I remember it. And B, watching it now, I think that what I responded to at the time was the fact that it's like, it's very episodic. And it does that thing that we've talked about recently, which maybe is a theme in our summer movies, where like, it's really, to me, like the great joy of it is just spending time with these people. It just feels like an actual weekend. Yeah. I feel like this is the unofficial sequel that came out way before to Dazed and Confused. (laughs) 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 This Nashville and Dazed and Confused have like a lot in common in very, very different ways, but in very, very similar ways too. Wow. Yeah. So the plot of the big chill is that there's a group of friends who all knew each other when they were in college together in Michigan. And in the very opening of the movie, we learn that one of them has committed suicide And so we see the different characters. I think there's seven or eight of them uh, receiving this news and reacting and heading to the town in South Carolina where he had been living with his friend Kevin Klein and going to his funeral and then all spending the weekend together and using his death as a catalyst to reconnect with each other and who they were. Returning to and avoiding and returning to again this question of like, why did he die and and what could they have done about it? Yeah. And in in, in an interesting way, like, why did we die too? Mm. Oh, and also I was near the end of this this time. I was like, oh, my God, it's the Breakfast Club. Or rather, (laughs) oh, my God, the Breakfast Club is like John Hughes was like the big chill for teens. Like, I swear (laughs) to God, there's like there's like an index card in the the Hughes home in the 80s that said that on it. Oh, my God. Olivia, how has the big chill factored into your your life. I mean, they kind of go together, right? I also grew up in the 80s and 90s with that soundtrack and had this idea of the movie. I think there are a few of those movies for me growing up where you are aware of them, you are aware of the soundtrack, you're aware of their existence, but it takes you like 10 years to watch the movie. And I think the first time I saw it, because my mother kept a lot of videotapes, she, we had VHSs that were 
movies that we recorded off of our old video disc player or where we would go to Blockbuster before they figured out you had to do this with the VHS tapes. There used mm. to be a time where you could go to Blockbuster, rent the movie, and then copy it onto VHS tape to own yourself. Mm-hmm. So I just remember growing up with these VHSs where there's no cover art, it's just labels. And it's mm-hmm. usually like two movies on one uh, one tape. Mm-hmm. And so that was my first time watching it. And I remembered initially just being kind of really disappointed, uh, mostly mm-hmm. because it was maybe 1999 and the hair and the fashion <laughs> of the 80s was not as aesthetically pleasing in 1999 as it is in 2021. Now mm-hmm. it's awesome, but uh <laughs> we've gotten really in a circle back toward that, I feel like. Like Kevin Klein looks very of the now with his running shorts that show honestly his butt. In my next life I want to come back as those running shorts. <laughs> From 2003 to now, the Kevin Klein archetype in this movie has has enjoyed quite a revival. Like it hasn't like <laughs> it's not gone away. Kevin Klein never goes out of style. He's like a Brooks <laughs> Brothers suit. You know, Jeff Goldblum in this movie, I still think, has a fairly awkward age. He is just yeah. you know growing into the Jeff Goldblum that we know and love today. But Kevin Klein never needed to grow into anything. He just kind of came out mm. yeah. fully formed birth of Venus style on a on a thing of running shoes. Out of the sea foam with his running shorts. Yeah. <laughs> Jogging out of the waves. I'm embarrassed at like how, in a way, I think I like had trouble with how much I immediately related to this movie the first time I saw it in my early 20s, knowing the baggage of the movie, like knowing mm. that this is basically boomers negotiating with themselves about mm. how and why they ended up the way that they did like you know and Sarah it's so funny that you say so about the what you say about the soundtrack and about Graceland because I was mm. dating a woman at that time her favorite album is Graceland and her mom was the one who was like we loved the big chill we played the soundtrack around the house like the movie is about this and I was like oh that sounds terrible <laughs> and then I and then I, I, it sounds t- like I don't want to hear you guys like sort of sorting your stuff out in that way. And then I saw it, I was like, I love this movie so much. Like, I love the the honesty about how terrible, you know, some of the circumstances are here. I love. Yeah, I, I really like what this movie does. It doesn't make excuses for anyone. They are just sort of like ruthlessly who they are. Mm. And I was very upset about how much I identified in my 20s in particular, looking back with Jeff Goldblum's character in this mm. movie. Some of us have yet to grow into ourselves in our early 30s, all right? It's fine. <laughs> I want to come back to the Jeff Goldblum thing because I actually have a theory based on the last... I rewatched it a couple times before we talked today, and I I have a theory on why he's so terrible in this movie compared to everyone mm. else. <laughs> mm. But I think that idea of boomers sorting out their shit... Uh, was the thing that actually really appealed to me on my mm. second watch of this film. The first time I think I was, it was 99. So I must've been, I don't know, 15, 14, 15. And it, you know, was just kind of, okay, this, the soundtrack is way more fun than this. I was also dealing with my own Arab, Italian, Mediterranean here. So Glenn Close's perm was just a little too close to home. <laughs> yeah. But When my dad died, he left a note, but they never found his body. And so it took seven years to have him declared dead in absentia in the state of Massachusetts. And so 
I didn't know for seven years where he was. And then when I found out, my mother just never talked about it and his family never talked about it. So when I came back to this film, I think in my late 20s, early 30s, when I was starting to get into that age as well of my life is not entirely in line, amazingly, with the fantasy I had for it when I was 17, 18. But watching people talk through it, and as you said, Alex, just being so unapologetically, authentically themselves, it served as a really good proxy for some of those conversations, not just about grief, which is one of my favorite things to talk about, but the sort of complicated grief that comes with losing a loved one to suicide. Mm -hmm. Also, you know, who doesn't want... Glenn Close and Kevin Klein to be your parents in that movie. How do you feel about how the movie handled those discussions and about the discourse and about the there's some cases where the humor is very I've been told not to say dark and I'm trying to figure out what else to gallows say. Gallows is the term. Mordant. Gallows, yes. Mordant and gallows. There's a moment I love where they're driving to the funeral and it's Mary Kay Place and William Hurt in the car and Mary Kay Place is saying you know, I feel bad. The last time I talked to Alex on the phone, we fought and William Hurt says, that's probably why he killed himself. I love that. So it's my much. favorite line. <laughs> it's my favorite exchange in the whole movie. And that is exactly how I am with death even now. Mm. So and I love that. I loved how much, you know, when they're driving off in the procession afterwards, I've driven in some of those funeral processions where you're driving really slowly. And I've just been in the car where we are all cackling with laughter, not because it's one of those aspects of grief that makes absolutely no sense mm -hmm. until you are in the middle of it. And I think that's what I love most about the movie is that mm. there is no right way to grieve. What they show instead is this really big spectrum. I love Glenn Close at first being the person who just has everything together and she's doing the planning. And then you see her at the end of the day in the shower, mm. having a complete breakdown and not letting anyone else see that. Mm -hmm. I love William Hurt being William Hurt. You know, Jeff Goldblum trying to pick up their friend Alex's <laughs> girlfriend at his funeral. It's just kind of perfect. And the idea that like at some point somebody is going to be fucking in this and we just don't know who. And at some point it kind of goes through everyone with Mary Kay Place and her plot and <laughs> Joe Beth Williams and um, oh God, what's his name? Tom Berenger. Yes, Tom Berenger. It's almost like a Midsummer Night's Dream. It's a Midsummer Night's Boomers Exactly. <laughs> I related with the gallows humor in a big, big, big way, especially with like people who don't have answers yet. Mm -hmm. Like where you just don't get answers. And I think that's, you know, what they really have to come to grips with at the end is sometimes you don't get those answers and you don't really get to figure out why someone did something. And, you know, what I have found, especially I'm working on a, a memoir about my dad right now and something I have found in trying to fit his life and my relationship with him and his death into a narrative is that, you know, you can look back on someone's life. It's, I think this is happening now a lot with Anthony Bourdain of mm. people looking at his life in retrospect and seeing how they can line up the things that lead to the inevitability of him ending mm. his life. And there's just no, it's a boat. It's a lifeboat that you can build, but it's not necessarily mm. the truth. And you just kind of have to reconcile yourself with, well, what do I need to get through this? What do I need to get to the other side of this weekend? And that's valid too, even if it's not exactly what happened. I was aware in this watching of it, how much they're talking about him at dinner and how much they're arguing over his motivations or who he is and what he did. And I'm sure that everybody in that room just has a very different experience of Alex who... 
Mm. And they're all true and they're all valid. It's also, I think, just nice watching a bunch of adults not have answers to things, especially as someone who is younger than or, you know, for the most part, when I was watching that movie, I was generally younger than them. Mm. Yeah. And this movie, like my parents got married in I think 1979. And so the photo albums that I have of them when they looked like their happiest is from this time. Like this is completely a portrait of them in like the little bubble of time that when I was younger, I like most wanted to get back to like just to to see like what was that like and so just the the moment of it and the aesthetic of it is yeah there's something something about this movie that I think like two millennials like is very special or can be very special because it's like look this is what they were like when you either weren't here yet or were too little to remember or like this is how Mary Kay Place conceived you (laughs) (laughs) for me like thinking about the people who I see in this movie as these adults like they're so young at 32 or mm. whatever in this movie. But for these people, they're old mm-hmm. because they're confronted with the death of this friend and don't have any answers for it. And if they can't know why he took his life, maybe they don't know everything they thought about him and maybe they actually don't know everything they thought about themselves. So that's like a big confrontation. But then also a thing that I recognize that's happening now with the millennials is a new generation has emerged. And when a new generation emerges, when like X emerges, the image of the previous generation comes into even sharper focus. Mm. And that can be a very uncomfortable thing to have to live with if you are that generation. (laughs) And you see these boomers being like, you know, we were, what did, what did Tom Berenger say? Oh, he thought you thought they would be Huey and Bobby and Huey. Yeah. Bobby and Huey. Right. Because they're all these like 68 idealists Mm -hmm. and now they are, all not and they have to reconcile what that what that means tom Berenger, to my understanding is supposed to be like a cross between like tom hayden and tom Selleck, right yes oh my god thank you i was like richard richard from friends ah <laughs> and richard from this is where you really start to feel your 30s where you're like Monica's best boyfriend with the mustache. (laughs) (laughs) So he's so in this reality, he is Tom Hayden, who has become Magnum P.I. Yeah. (laughs) And also you feel like the show, like at least the name, there's like some T.J. Hooker energy because it's J.T. Lancer. So the whole J.T. Lancer thing is like so delightful. It feels like a real show. Like you believe that a college radical from the 60s would become Tom Selleck. (laughs) (laughs) And then fight Rosie on the air about gun control. (laughs) Watching him do the J.T. Lancer and fail at doing the J.T. Lancer jump into the car. That's like the moment where you realize, oh, shit, I am old. I cannot Mm -hmm. do this. And also he's probably going to be feeling that for like another two weeks. Yeah, (laughs) It's like when you have your first multi-day hangover as an over 30. Oh, God. Yeah. And you're like, oh, my God, this is what my life is now. Yeah. And that also means there's like a little bit of Dukes of Hazard DNA in this show concept. Also. <laughs> in the jumping into the car. Yeah. 
the, the relationship between them rang true in a way that I didn't think that I'd recognized before or hadn't focused so much on before, but a kind of like, will they, won't they for years? And then it finally happens and n- nobody really knows what to do with it. Mm-hmm. And then like in the, in the end, after they finally sleep together and they're waking up, she reasserts that she's going back to her husband and, mm-hmm. you know, it would be really nice to her husband if he would take her husband, the family and the boys on a trip to the studio yeah i i loved how every place where this movie could be sentimental even though it's built on selling a sentimental soundtrack it is not sentimental Mm -hmm. which i think is like a major success of it it could be like we're gonna stay in touch and like something could happen and she's like no i'm going back with my husband who i settled on because he reminds me of my dad sometimes you just have to have sex with tom Berenger one time you know amen I was wondering in this, if it was good for her, that's, I, I mean, it, it looks very good. I think in the criterion release for this, Lena Dunham wrote the essay and she refers to it as him gnawing on her, like a prime rib or something like that. Mm. And I can't get that image out of my mind, but he is certainly enjoying this. Is that good or bad? Well, hmm. I think it's good for him, but I wonder if for her that's sort of, you know, it's like the buildup is so much that the reality is never going to meet the fantasy and you're just kind of stuck in this. uh, Well, uh, that was that was a thing. I mean, maybe this is projection, but I feel like maybe it's the thing where you like have this idea of this person and then it's you realize that it's like what you both need is for you to like puncture that bubble by just Mm -hmm. like fantasy becomes reality. And he's still Tom Berenger, but he's like the person Tom Berenger. And you're like, yeah, we we wouldn't probably, one of us would get bored, you know, like that was great, but it was, it's real now. He's going to get back on that plane with that stewardess who gave him the extra, the extra Smirnoff and uh, do it in the bathroom. And we see that like sort of flirted with throughout the movie where no one knows if he is really the TV character or himself. Mm-hmm. everybody around him is not sure who he actually is. And then in the, in the outset of the movie, or is not sure if he is the character he's playing or an actor, like between children and police officers and stewardesses and, and everybody. And like, maybe that's it. It's like she was expecting, she's expecting TJ and she just got the, you know, this guy that she went to college with, unfortunately. It's JT. 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 <laughs> you know, that's too heavy of a lift for me, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> they have a conversation at one point where she's talking about her writing in college and how she gave that up to have a family. And, you know, he used to be this campus radical and now he's TJ Hooker. And... I wonder also if there is a feeling there of like, we will, by connecting with each other, connect with the people that we used to be. And it's like, yeah, a little, but like life is more complicated than that. Like, I I don't think she's going to be with Richard forever, but it's also like, you know, Tom Berenger can't be the reason you leave Richard. It's a really good way of looking at it. I I don't know. I think she stays with Richard. Yeah. I mean, her, t- I mean, her tension throughout is, I mean, she articulates this at some point. It's like she needs someone to like bring out that wild side of her. She is a person who is assured that her husband will not stray because he is afraid of getting herpes. Mm-hmm. He travels with a framed picture of their children. <laughs> <laughs> also, I love the scene where they find him eating his sandwich and he has in front of him a glass of milk and a jar of mayonnaise. <laughs> 
and white bread. Yeah, and it's like obviously the sandwich has other stuff in it, but you just see the milk and the mayonnaise, and it's just like these are the items that symbolize him. Yeah, Olivia, what's your take on that seat on that exchange that they have? You mean the one where he's like, "Oh, I've been thinking about your friend, and <laughs> I have some ideas." Mm-hmm. <laughs> and somehow they didn't hurt him. <laughs> you know, there are two big outsiders in this film. You have Richard, and then you have Chloe, who's Alex's ex. But she manages to integrate or to like kind of fit in with everyone so much better. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really sort of salt and pepper shaker type of thing where you're always when you marry someone outside of the friend group or, you know, you bring someone back, there's always that. Is it going to click? Is it not going to click? And Richard is just this very clueless man who also has this need to fill space. And he probably has his Mm -hmm. own really deep interior life and probably someone he wanted to be in 1968. And he's trying Mm -hmm. to connect with them in some way on that. And it is just, he's just failing very miserably. Until you said this, I didn't think of this until you said that you have these two outsiders, but you have someone on the eldest end of the next generation Mm, and someone on the youngest end of the previous generation. Like Mm -hmm. Richard is like 11 years older than the rest of the cast. So like if the cast were millennials, she would be Z and he would be Mm. X and that would be the sandwich that was, that they're being observed by. He would hmm. be the he would be the slice of white bread and she would be like the <laughs> really fun, crazy swirl with yeah. raisins in it. <laughs> and she says that thing where so I think um, to Nick, to William Hurt's character, I don't like talking my pa- about my past as much as you people do. And like <laughs> that's that's where it's like a very clear generational like she's still living her life. Mm hmm. They're talking about the past and reliving the past partly because. They were happier then and they were happier then, you know, because they had a clear sense of purpose and they had hope, which is the thing that Jeff Goldblum was trying to pitch a story on initially, which I think they never picked that plot point up again, which I like that that it doesn't become a thing where at the end he's like. Sincerely yours, Jeff Goldblum. (laughs) I think, though, it is. I think that is why... This is his book? I think it is, because I think that's why he's such an asshole in the movie. Everyone else has these really good and bad moments. And Mm. Jeff, I... There is such a degree of self-loathing in his character, in Mm. how how he is presented versus everyone else, who is just as... Again, just as good, just as bad. Mm -hmm. But he's just like the punchline of every single, you know, when he's Mm -hmm. trying to ask Meg if uh, she wants, if he can be her, her baby daddy, he's the one person she has zero interest in. She will happily sleep with everybody else in that house, but Jeff Goldblum. Yeah. Which is funny because it's like, Okay, it's Jeff Goldblum, Mary Kay Place. Like, I realize this is a deep field, but, you know. (laughs) It could be worse. Yeah, it's still Jeff Goldblum. (laughs) He'll be very tall. Is your take that the framing of this is basically like Stand By Me and like at the end, Jeff Goldblum is writing the big chill? Like, is it the (laughs) book that he says that he was going to be writing? I think it is, but I also appreciate that it isn't so overtly done. Yeah, that's very nice. Well, there's still time for a sequel where Jeff Goldblum is like an aged writer. All these people are like (laughs) 70 now and he's like reading, you know, he's like, page one, the big chill. (laughs) Meg Tilly was stretching. (laughs) 
I, I love, I really love that theory. I'm not discounting the theory at all. I do want to speak though, as a person in my twenties, whose friend circle was all traditionally more accomplished than him. Hmm. Though I think if we're talking about me as the him in the situation, I lived a more interesting life if I'm being judgmental, but also as a person who never had their shit together, always had like three hustles going on is the sort of person who might've been trying to hustle more successful friends to invest in something. Like I recognize that guy in a big way. And I think Mm -hmm. like a lot of friend groups have a, like someone who's like, bright and enthusiastic but just can't fucking get it together in any real way the like this fucking guy of the friend group where you're like ah barry <laughs> yeah yeah and their main accomplishment is like they write for people that's cool whatever i'm sure that was a big deal at that time <laughs> that is true. and he did say he did say he could sum up someone's story and get this 26 paragraphs. I know. Can you imagine a people article that's 26 paragraphs long? I can't imagine an issue with people that's 26 paragraphs. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. But then he's also wearing his Village Voice t-shirt and I feel like he's just one of, you know, he's scrappy. He wants to, he wants to be that guy who's writing for Mm -hmm. the village voice or who's someone who is much more cool than he probably is yeah than he absolutely is but he's just trying yeah but maybe as you're saying maybe that was just him being hard in himself in his portrayal which is which i like that writer if that's the if that's the truth maybe he's much more 2021 jeff goldblum in real life i'd say of everyone who had the most substantial glow up in this movie it's (laughs) jeff goldblum Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is not Tom Berenger. No. Sorry, Tom Berenger. Sarah, okay, so you are a person who is exactly the age of the characters in this movie. Mm-hmm. What about where they're at and what they're talking through? And obviously, 2020 and 2021 are much different years than 1983. As I texted yes. you, all I can imagine when I'm watching these movies is no one knows about climate change. Yeah. They're like, boy, life is hard. I'm more financially successful than I plan to be. <laughs> I'm going to live forever. <laughs> what resonated with what they were going through or what they were picking apart in their lives? I literally got a message yesterday from a friend who had found like a high school art lit magazine that I had a poem in and sent it to me and written something like, ah, to be young. And I was like, what are you talking about? That happened 25 minutes ago. (laughs) I think every age is weird and I guess never stops (laughs) being weird. But I currently feel like I was a teenager really recently. And like, in in some ways I still am my teenage self. And like, that's a good thing. You know, it's, it's not like I am totally erratic emotionally and can't drive, but like, I feel like I have remained authentic to kind of some kind of true self that I was acquainted with at the time also. But also I guess like, it doesn't feel that long ago, but also there's this feeling of like, well, here we are in like the prime of adulthood. This is also the moment when you kind of have to get serious about like, is, am I going to keep doing this? Am I happy with this path I'm on? Am I going to make a big change? Do I, have the space to make a big change right now? What happens if your biological clock is ticking like this and you're surrounded by award-winning actors one weekend? (laughs) (laughs) For me personally at this age, I am very aware of the feeling of like how fast time can begin to pass. The big decisions that you make around this time, for me anyway, are partly motivated by that awareness. Mm. You mentioned feeling like you still have a lot of your 
intrinsic teenage self in you? Do you think that we are more whole than the boomer generation? Because I wonder if they would have felt that same way in in the movie. Hmm. To me, the thing about millennial identity is that like we've been infantilized for like our entire lives. And I feel like there was this cultural myth of like, why aren't the millennials getting real jobs? And it's like, because there's only 25 of them because you crashed the economy. You like drove it off of a cliff and then blamed it on us. Just We've just recently moved on to like mainstream media complaining about Gen Z, I think. So sorry, guys. But I mean... Millennials have been talked about as if we're dumb adolescents for like 20 years, you know, like we're in our adult, like the prime of adulthood at this point. And I, I, I mean, boomers, I know we're like shamed for being hippies and also seen as being idealists out of touch with reality who were ruining everything. But I think that like boomers were feared by the mainstream in a way that millennials have never been feared. I think Gen Z is a little bit feared, actually. So that's good for them. I fear Gen Z. <laughs> I fear their fashions. I, I fear, But like every generation has to love unflattering clothing in its own way. So whatever. Olivia, what motivated that question? That's a good question. I think one thing that I am aware of as an as an elder millennial is how much work I am doing to have this idea of a whole self. You know, mm. I've seen a Gestalt therapist for the last 10 years and their whole thing is kind of integrating past experience with lived current experience and the idea that we are just this one mind body mm. unit and, you know, kind of de-emphasizing compartmentalization where it's not necessary. And I think that that is something that when I have talked about it, uh, my mother and I don't really have a big relationship anymore. But when I have talked about it with her in the past, it is something that that she was more likely to dismiss. And so I'm working with a very small sample size of whom I know to be boomers, uh, Mm. who I know as boomers beyond just the workplace or one specific scenario. But I get the sense that there were the 60s, but then there was such uh there was such a U-turn out of that. Mm-hmm. And you see them grappling it with that in this film in the 80s of we're not doing that stuff anymore. We're not, you know, the the uh, in the public defender's office, you just work with scum who are, <laughs> you know, very thank God that Mary Kay Place his character was not saying that on TikTok because I feel like that is when the Zoomers <laughs> would have canceled her. <laughs> but I just don't think there was as much room for that. And maybe because we just had a lot of time after we all graduated and like a couple of years Mm -hmm. later, the recession hit and we also just have more access to more schools of thought and everything. But it just seems that we are more focused now on this idea of wholeness and that the person we were when we were 14 is the person is there is still aspects of that person in who we are at 36 Mm-hmm. I do think that there is that millennial quest for wholeness in a way that we don't see in these characters necessarily. We see these characters being like, how and why am I not the person I was when I was 18? It's weird. Um, I think the millennials have that, but the millennials have that because we have no wealth. Mm. I think a huge piece of it is like we had a we had a spare decade. Like we're talking about a movie right now where like all of these friends yeah. are you know, the kind of wealthy it would take a millennial to be 50 to get to with regard to like sort of like traditional work accomplishment just by way of like what's on the table. 
And even then they'd have to do something intense, like invent a, you know, a big app. Right, right, right. Or invest in crypto at the right time. I mean, Glenn Close would still be paying her med school bills. Yeah. A reason, not like the reason, but one of the reasons outside of just various forms of, of social progress, the, the ability to connect with people online for at least the majority of our lives, if not the, the whole of our lives. In addition to all of that, the reason why there's a quest for wholeness is there wasn't available to the generation at large a ton of economic opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to suggest that if we had that, we would just have all inherently been Kevin Klein sellouts. But, uh, you know, I think we had the luxury of time that came at the expense of any financial certainty. I think there is a wilderness that comes with grief. Maybe that's part of this is that they didn't really have those years as people mm-hmm. who graduated college 68, 69. But it will catch up with you in one way or another. Maybe that's why boomers are like known for having midlife crises because they can also afford that. (laughs) Cause I like increasingly I'm convinced that like the phases of your life will happen when they can happen. Like I've been having a lot of typical early twenties experiences in my like late twenties, early thirties, just because I didn't make time for them at the time when other people were doing them. And I was like, no, 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 thank you. I'm going to work very hard and do academic things. And I remember thinking like, hee hee, aren't I smart for like skipping over all that emotional growth and like having a life. I'm just on a fast track to importance. And then it turned out that I had like, you know, it's like if if you like are on a crash diet and then you wake up and you've sleepwalked into the kitchen and you like wake up with cake in your mouth. Like that's how it happens, I think. You just have to live your phases wherever it's possible to live them. But yeah, but I think like being on a fast track to a successful career is one of the best ways to be kept away from having developmental phases because you just won't have time. Like I was going to say in one way, like 70% of the day is at least like open to that kind of processing in one form or another, Mm -hmm. even though the fact that that's not really true, because like millennials, as a result of having no money, have to work several jobs or have to hustle or do all that stuff. But if you're not defining yourself by your job, you get to define yourself by something else. And maybe it's relationships, because I think defining yourself by your successful profession is so socially sanctioned as to be very seductive if it's at all available to you. Mm-hmm. even if it might make you feel more isolated and sad because all these people are lonely. They're all and like one of the hopeful things about it is that it ends with like people not scattering as much as they were scattered before. Yeah. They're still in that house. To stay in a place where they can think about these things forever. I think to some extent too, like we see in Nick the opposite. We see someone who is stuck in the openness to thinking about these things. Mm. And, you know, in Nick, we have Nick is the person who at least, you know, vibe and outlook wise, I relate to the most. And he is I think he is their resident millennial and is as a result fucked up all the time. he's constantly thinking about this stuff so like and also he's a millennial because he has a youtube channel (laughs) (laughs) i did text sarah was like does no one care that nick was in vietnam like no one yeah they're just like shut up nick i don't want to care about your blown up penis or whatever (laughs) the situation is 
I mean, I think that he's he makes them all guilty yeah. and they can probably all from the idealist standpoint, judge him. But they never do that because they'd all they'd also have to acknowledge like whatever privilege kept them out of it. The Nick character, not just as a character, he's he's William Hurt and and it's great to watch early 80s William Hurt on screen. But like what he represents is really fascinating. Like he's mm-hmm. a real chaos agent and he's a real reminder to them of many things that it seems like a lot of them would feel much better not remembering. I mean, and it makes sense that he and Chloe end up together because they both, they both by nature make people uncomfortable. (laughs) Chloe's really great. Like, can we talk about why this movie needed Chloe? With Nick, you have that sort of conscience that knows the backstory, but Chloe's just, she is completely in the moment, in the now, and Mm -hmm. is... You know, when she's talking with uh, Joe Beth Williams and the at the funeral scene and she's, you know, she she's talking about having found him. And Joe Beth Williams <laughs> says, uh, well, what are you going to do? What are you going to do now? And she's like, oh, well, we cleaned it up. I love that. so much. I, <laughs> But again, I feel like that is such a true thing. Like when you go into those crises, you are just thinking mm-hmm. about, well, OK, let's clean up the bathtub. Mm-hmm. And then and then we'll figure out the rest from there. And it's just so it's so lovely and light to see her in there. Yeah. And she's like their last link with him because they're his old friends. And yet they a lot of them have kind of fallen out of touch with him. And that's what they talk about near the end. Right. Right. And she only knew him in the last few months and has initially this kind of inscrutable quality you you watch the characters navigate this initial sense of her character is like she's the young hot girlfriend who's says inappropriate things and then i feel like it it becomes clear that like she's just like extremely extremely genuine Mm. I mean, she and Nick are just all id. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they have a connection based on that. Like she called his call-in show at some point, and and it, it was so they they have a pre-existing connection, although it's one way in parasocial. Yes, it, it's interesting what you said, Sarah. Where she's the last connection to the to to him to Alex, and as a result, no one has any use for her. I mean, outside of the fact that he lived on Bear, is is, is Kevin Klein's character's name Barry? Is it? I don't think so. No, it's Harold. Harold, Harold. You know, he lived on on Harold's property, but like even that relationship seems like it might have been weird. Well, he also had sex with Harold's wife. Let's not forget. Yeah. yeah, totally, totally. He had sex with Harold's wife, but they all just know Alex as he existed once. And so like they don't mm. have like, I mean, everyone's trying to be nice to her for sure. Mike tries to sleep with her unsuccessfully, but they have no use for her because because she represents him now and they have no relationship mm. with him now the people do that do have a relationship with him now as you say are kevin klein and glenn close and their relationship with him is unique <laughs> mm-hmm. the guy who played alex where when you see in the opening credits that's kevin costner so the fact that glenn close in this movie gets with both kevin costner and kevin klein the two great kevins of the 80s living the dream <laughs> Does he exist in flashbacks or something like my understanding is that they had some of those flashback scenes and then they just decided not to include any of them, which I thought was. Yeah, I thought that was Mm -hmm. the much better choice. But you still see him as the corpse being dressed up. I don't want to have actually known him like knowing him through them is, is, is a great accomplishment. I was impressed by how this movie allowed him to remain a mystery. 
because it, it feels authentic to the fact that like people have moved on with their lives and fallen out of touch and like and because of that like they don't know and then even when you live in very close proximity to someone there are things you never know about them and like that's just part of life have you read uh darren strauss's half a life no it's his memoir of having in a completely no fault traffic accident killed uh, in high school, killed a girl in his high school class because her bike came out of nowhere and hit his car. Mm. It's a short, great piece, but he, he talks about this thing as like this, I think it's called, he calls it the shadow of an idea or the ghost of an idea of this person who he knew casually from high school, but she was, I think a year or two below him. And just that but he, this is still now a very big part of his life. And I mean, that I think for me is such a encapsulation of my relationship with my dad. But I think that's mm-hmm. also one of the reasons to your early question, Alex, of why I love this movie is just that you're not watching a movie about this guy who died, but you're watching about all the people who are absorbing the parts of him that they knew and mm-hmm. maybe reintegrating them a bit in the wake of his death. Mm-hmm. In the processing here, what do you recognize in your relationship to that element? And I guess also like what does their relationship to the memory of a person over the circumstance, does that does that resonate with you in any way? I used to uh, host with with a nonprofit called The Dinner Party, which is a groups of potluck dinners or get togethers coming together for people in their 20s, 30s, early 40s who have experienced kind of this profound and early loss Mm -hmm. where it's, you know, very much in that kind of big chill vein of everyone getting around a table and having the space to talk. Whenever I talk to anyone within that group or whenever I have spoken with someone who has experienced that level of loss, especially early on, this movie always comes up very closely in connection to it, regardless of Mm -hmm. how they lost their loved one. And I think one of the really big merits of it is that it doesn't show grief as a linear process. It is mm-hmm. much more circuitous, Mobius-like, you know, it's a, the Ouroboros eating its own tail. You kind of zigzag around from one stage to the next. And, you know, at one point you're laughing and at one point you're on the shower floor crying or you're saying at the dinner table in the midst of everyone making jokes that, Oh, Alex should be here. We should have set a chair out for him. And then you start to have a breakdown over the fact that you didn't put a chair out for Alex or you get stopped for driving drunk on your on your friend's property or, you know, any number of things you get high at there. You get high at your ex's funeral. You know, I think that for me, it's also, I think, one of those very few movies about death that is because they left out all of the scenes with Alex is entirely about the people left behind. And mm. I think often when we are focusing on on a death, on a grieving process, it is about the person who's no longer there and less about the people who are left to kind of figure out, okay, what do we do with this life now that we don't have mm. this person in it, mm. no matter who that person is. Mm-hmm. 
I talked about this in an episode not long ago, and and I I almost feel bad bringing it up because it feels trivial in the context of of losing a father. Grief is not a competition. But it reminds of the fact that I lost my dad in my late 20s. I lost my dog recently. Love my dog. It said something about it on TikTok. And then all these people were essentially like, you're grieving wrong. Your laugh when you made that chuckle. I remembered seeing that. I mean, TikTok is a platform for very short videos. It's not a platform for abstraction and for thinking like it just can't happen. And the commentary, the way that it's structured, it can't happen. But I've thought so much about what people's expectations of grief are, what my mm. processes of grief were when I lost my father, what my processes of grief have been in other, in other times. And again, like I think that that's why it just hit me, why it's so fascinating that this is a movie about grief and I've never heard it described as a movie about grief. Neither have I. And that makes it especially weird that it's kind of like a movie that's known for its wonderful soundtrack. <laughs> I think grief is a great motivator for a good soundtrack. It's a great point. We know Kevin Klein is a dad at least twice, if not potentially three times. Mm-hmm. Who is the daddy? And I would ask a bonus question. It might be the same person. Who's a character upon upon rewatching that you found yourself a little closer to than the last time. So who's the daddy and who's someone you got a little closer to this this go? Oh boy. Mm. I think Mary Kay Place is the daddy. She's got her shit figured out. And she's like, I've been thinking about sort of your late early 30s or your early mid 30s <laughs> as like the Michelle Pfeiffer and Catwoman age where you're just like, Put on your pajamas and impregnate me. Let's do it. Like, I do not have any more time to waste just about any of my big decisions. And like, I don't know. I remember watching this as a teen and just like really loving Mary Kay Place in it and really in anything she was in. Like, she, we talked about her in Citizen Ruth not that long ago. And like, I don't know. There's something about her presence that I find often really comforting. And also she's someone who like, can express a lot of strength and a lot of a lot of character by appearing to not do very much mm. which is something that I always respect and yeah she she gets her life really sorted out that weekend <laughs> very proud of her <laughs> she also appears to be the only person who has satisfying sex which is nice even though it's not my cup of tea what was going on there it's very nice that they we didn't see the whole thing. There could have been other stuff. As long as I hope that some action happened while they were clad head to toe. No, I'm sure he was just like very softly gyrating and giving her tiny kisses for two hours. There is a time and a place. It's nice. It is the exact opposite of the Behringer treatment. <laughs> I think for me, the daddy is and will always be William Hurt. Mm. I like him a little complicated. I like a wreck. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think especially identify myself very much with Mary Kay Place in that sort of dynamic that they have. I think, though, in this watching, I got a lot closer probably to Glenn Close and mm. that idea of needing everybody to be, you know, she, like you said, Sarah, she doesn't really have a huge transformation in this the way that other people do, but she is you know, happy to facilitate it for other people. And, Mm. uh, yeah, I think, I think especially in this last year and a half or so, I, I've also kind of felt that need to be the one taking care of things and making people 
happy and comfortable and making sure everyone has enough uh, Tupperware and all of that. Yeah. I also love how this movie gives us different pairings of people and we see kind of Mm. different groupings the whole way through. But like she seems to be I mean, she and Kevin Klein really are like they're kind of the parents of the group as well. Yeah. And yeah, she's the one who's kind of like talking to people and being like, oh, I could put the two of you together. (laughs) I also really love the fight they have when she's on when she's on coke. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which fight is that? They're in bed. I think it's when she's snapping at him for insider trading and uh, he is just like, I'm not having an argument with you while you're on cocaine. This is <laughs> just not going to end well for either of us, which is exactly how my spouse and I fight minus the cocaine. It's good to know when you shouldn't be fighting, like what circumstances you shouldn't be fighting. That's what tells me that they have a really good relationship. Yeah, definitely. Oh, I love them. Yeah, I love William Hurt and everything. I feel terrible knowing that he's like a piece of shit, but like I love, I just love William Hurt's face. Like I love, I love all the acting he does up upstairs. Just imagine being a casting director in the early 80s. They're like, we got this giant slab of blonde guy <laughs> and he's, he's good at, at acting and he's good at standing there. I love, yeah, I love, I love him in this movie. I love his character. I love that he's a nihilism daddy. Like, I think that that's really important in everybody's he life. really is. He's a nihilism daddy. I felt closer to Meg Tilly uh, than normal or mm. didn't feel closer to her personally, but I, I saw her more. Um, mm. in this movie than, than seeing her as a like, oh, she's just, she's here, not as a novelty, but like she's here as an aside. And I think I realized her role as being a signifier of the, the up and comers, uh, in addition to many other things, this go. And she's just, I mean, she's absolutely delightful. Yeah. Yeah. She's wonderful. She's an actress who was always like special to me when I was growing up because she just, I don't know, like the roles that she was in were always really interesting. And like she had all these like almost things around this time. Like she was almost an Amadeus and then she sprained her ankle playing soccer with children. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that terrible? No way. Yeah. She could have been the main Amadeus lady. Mrs. Amadeus, they called her. (laughs) Mrs. Wolfie. (laughs) Olivia, where can where can people find you? Uh, I am online at oliviagiovetti.com. Uh, that's where you can find most of my recent writing. And, uh, I am on Twitter at ogiovetti. And yeah, that's a, that's about it. I guess I'm also on TikTok, but that's just a weird place. Let's not, <laughs> let's not go to TikTok. <laughs> I don't think our, our audience is largely on TikTok. So yeah, find, find Olivia <laughs> elsewhere. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you so much. This was super fun. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, everybody, that is our episode of You Are Good for this week. Thank you so much to Olivia for joining us in this chat about The Big Chill. Like I I think I said it earlier, I think this is one of my favorite episodes. It's intimate and nice and heartfelt and... uh, and thoughtful and I like to think we do that with all of our episodes but I don't know there's a warmth here I've I've really enjoyed so thank you so much Olivia for coming on and talking with us about you know awkward Jeff Goldblum <laughs> thank you to Carolyn Kendrick who produces 
We do our episodes and makes them sound great. And uh, our music director as well. You can uh, find Carolyn's music at carolynkendrick.com. Like I said earlier in the episode, we have our first volume of our soundtrack coming out this Friday on October 1st, 2021. That's all by way of Carolyn. So check that out. Thank you so much to Fresh Lesh for providing the beats for our episodes. Makes all the transitions sound nice. Thank you to you for listening to the show. We really appreciate it. Thanks to all the folks on Patreon who support us there. Uh, it really goes a long way. You get the bonus episodes like we said earlier. Thank you to everyone who is uh, finding us and engaging us on social media, Instagram at YouAreGoodPod, Twitter at YouAreGoodPod. I'm on TikTok, kind of less than normal these days, but I'm there talking about stuff so you can find me there at alex deed and uh sarah uses social media sparingly because <laughs> she's the wiser of the two of us <laughs> um all right thanks the next time we talk with you it's gonna be october so uh get ready for some spooky movies take care everybody